Luke 12, 1 to 12 is the text for today. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the gospel of the Lord. So one of the things that I love about the way we study through books of the Bible at Cross of Life is you start to see uh, contextual themes that build over the weeks that we study. Um, And it's my encouragement to you to make every week of worship a priority partially for that reason. Uh, You're going to get more out of the text that we study if you see it in the context of what we've already studied in Luke's Gospel. For those of you who maybe weren't able to be with us the last week or last couple weeks, um, Jesus has in the text recently been on blast against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they are legalists. They are taking God's law and they are using it as if it were God's promises, making God's demands the things that people should follow in order to be loved and accepted by God. But God says that's not how it works. The law, yes, it has a purpose. It is there to show us how we're not good enough for God, but then it should drive us to the promises of Jesus, which are that in your baptism, you are completely and fully forgiven by God, loved by him unconditionally. Not because you followed the law, but because Jesus has followed the law in your place. And both of those messages are necessary. Now, as Jesus says this, he turns to his disciples, which is the text that we're looking at today, and he starts to talk about what he has just done to the Pharisees. And what he's going to focus on today are words. He's going to focus on words because in many ways, words are the most telling characteristic of a person. You might look at a person and might make some assumptions about them on the basis of their build or their height or their skin color or their age or whatever, But very often those assumptions are wrong or at least slightly off. But the Bible says, and I think we intuitively know, that what a person says is a pretty good indicator of the type of person that they are. In fact, Jesus said it this way in this same gospel, in Luke's gospel. He says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He says, if you hear what a person says, you know what is in their heart. These things are congruent. They are equal. They are the the same. See, Jesus says, words matter because they show you who you are. And that's why he tells us to judge on the basis of words. 
We're not supposed to judge a person's heart before God and say, I know for sure that you are or are not a Christian. But what I can do and what God commands me to do is to look at the outward appearance of a person and say, this seems to be what's going on. The way you talk seems to indicate that maybe you don't trust God or believe in the true God or see your relationship with God on the basis of your works or or whatever the case may be. The Bible says it like this. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and no doubt. Jesus looked at the heart of every single person, but as he talks to us, he says, look at their words. Those are a good indicator. And it makes sense. And this is really the theme of the entire scripture. The first page of the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the waters. The spirit of, the, of God was there as well, hovering. And the next thing that happens is God says something. He uses words to create and sustain physical life. He doesn't zap lightning bolts. He doesn't make an incantation or mix up a potion. He just talks, and it happens. And as John recounts for us the coming of Jesus into the world, he starts that same way in the beginning, but then makes a different focus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus comes into the world as the Word, the thing that creates and sustains spiritual life. You could maybe say it this way, words are God's most prized possession, They are the thing that he uses to create and sustain both physical and spiritual life. And therefore, he defends them. The first commandment, many of you know, is that you shall have no other gods. But do you know what the second is? Speak the truth about God. When it comes to your words, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. This is the second commandment. It's right at the front, I think, for a reason. God sees words as important. And so we're going to talk about words. Jesus is going to talk about words because what you say says something about you. If we're going to look into our hearts as much as we can as sinful, corrupt people, it's going to start by looking at our words and saying, what do our words say about us? So Jesus starts the text this way. He turns to his disciples and says, on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says the the thing that they do wrong, their problem, their ultimate issue is that they're hypocrites. The word hypocrite in Greek comes from, is the same word for an actor in a play, like somebody who is doing something that is not actually their character. They say one thing, but they don't actually mean that thing. He says this is like yeast. Those of you who picked up baking during the pandemic, you know how yeast works. You only need a little bit of it and you can work it through an entire batch of dough that only that little bit goes through the whole dough and makes it rise. You don't have to have a whole lot, just a little bit. And once you have that little bit, it starts to go through everything. Jesus says, this is what's happening with the Pharisees. The reason the Pharisees are like this is because of a little bit of hypocrisy. See, what Jesus says is not only does what you say say something about you, but what you say does something to you, which is why he also cares about this. He says, when you you speak, not only do you indicate something about yourself, but actually your own words start to affect you. You ever had this happen? Where you tell a lie and then you kind of start to believe the lie? You ever have seen somebody else do that? They lie to themselves and they start to believe their own press? What we say does something to us. 
Have you ever had that inner monologue that tells you that you are or are not something that you should or should not be? And it starts to ruin or magnify your day. What you say, it does something to you. And so Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Except for all of us are. And isn't it the case that, that much of North American life is hypocritical? We're putting on a show for everybody around us. Just a couple dumb examples and one maybe a little bit deeper example. So the other day I was um, going to watch a Maple Leafs game and I turned on the TV and I was trying to flip to the, the right channel for the game and I accidentally clicked on the shopping channel. And on the shopping channel they were selling a ring and uh, the people who were selling the ring were like, this is a statement piece, this, this draws the whole outfit together, this is the focal point of the outfit. And I thought to myself, I have never thought about anyone's rings ever. Like, if you ladies are wearing rings, great. I've never noticed any of them. They are not the focal point of anything for me. They're not drawing together anything. Like, but that's what they were selling, right? They were selling this idea that something you did, something you could show, would communicate something about you. Problem is, most of us don't notice it, right? Maybe a little bit more personal. Do you remember what shirt I wore for church last week? I guess 95% of you, maybe all of you, don't remember. That's okay. You guys stare at me for about an hour every week and you don't know what I wore. It doesn't matter, right? Like, we care so much. I mean, I'm going to stand in front of my closet every single Sunday morning and say, did I wear this shirt last week? Except for none of you are going to care, right? We're hypocrites. We're trying to show something to the world that we're not actually. Maybe to get a little deeper, though, isn't it true that much of what you communicate about yourself to the world is not really what's true about you? It's not the real you. It's the story you want to tell about yourself so that people will think more highly of you. How real are you? Social media? Your friends? The people you work near? Do they know the real you? Does your family even know the real you? And a lot of times we're hiding, and I'm not calling for like just a brash, just tell everybody all of your dirty laundry, but I am saying it's very easy for us to just hide. To hide who we actually are, to hide our struggle, to hide our pain, to hide our addictions, to hide the things that we don't want other people to see because we really want to be loved by everyone else. We want to be accepted. We realize that we should, we, we need to be in some sense accepted, and so we realize that since we are not by nature that way, we hide it. I think this is why Jesus says that you need to be on guard. And it's not something that somebody says when you know exactly what the problem is and you're fully prepared to deal with the problem. That's something that somebody says when they're pretty sure you don't know what the problem is and you're not ready for it. Be on guard, Jesus says. This happens to you way faster and way more thoroughly like yeast than you think. Jesus calls us to realize our hypocrisy is so easy to fall into. And yet he says, there's, there's no point. I mean, why would you try to be hypocrites? Look, you believe in a God who knows all things and who actually, because of the things that you do, is the power to throw you into hell forever. Right? Don't fear those who can only for a little while exclude you from their friend group or defriend you on Facebook or not talk to you or include you in something that you want to be part of. Do not be afraid of those people. That's why we're hypocrites. What we actually should do is be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And we should be afraid of him because he knows all things. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, there's nothing concealed that will be, not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. You know, sometimes people ask this about the end of the world, because there's this interesting section in, in Revelation where there is this thing about books are being opened, and, and they'll ask something like, you know, is everybody going to know all the things that I did in my life at the end of my life? I think the answer is yes. Like from this text, even the things you've done behind closed doors will be made known. So what are you hiding from? You're hiding from the the ire of just a couple human beings who can't really do much? Or are you owning the fact that, that the one who knows all things sees and judges on the basis of what he sees? Maybe we could ask ourselves this question, who cares if we fool people? Great. We can't fool God. You can't fool the one who knows all things. And so Jesus says, since that's the case, and you can't fool him, and you all know what you've done behind the closed doors of your life, fear him. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And that makes people very uncomfortable, doesn't it? I think for a couple of reasons, of course, first of all, that they're still thinking through the part where everything that they've ever done is going to be exposed. But secondly, that, that they should fear God. I mean, they've heard throughout their life, God is, is love and God is good and God is going to bless you. And that's true. Except for Jesus says you should fear God. Right? He says it about as clear as he can. In fact, he repeats himself. You should fear this God. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The fear of God is a tough concept, I think, for a lot of people because we don't want to be like terrified of God. I think we want to believe God is always loving and always kind and like a big, you know, jolly grandpa who's going to hold us on our, in his lap and feed us hard candy or something like this. Like, that's what we kind of want God to be. But, but the Bible says, no, he should be as terrifying as the bear that's in your kid's house. I mean, imaginarily in your kid's house. He's terrifying. A God who, who judges justly is not swayed by any person's opinion and has the power to throw people into eternal tor- torment forever. Like, that should terrify us. And Jesus says as much. And I don't think we do. I think we, we want God to believe be something that he's not. Jesus says, fear him. But then, Jesus says, don't fear him. Did you notice it? It's almost like Jesus is like split personality in this moment, right? Verse 5, he says, I tell you who you should fear, the God who can destroy you forever in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then in the very next verses, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very heads, hairs on your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You see this? Jesus says, you should be so terrified of God because you are by nature a hypocrite and God abhors hypocrites. Don't be afraid. How is that the case? Well, in the context, remember what Jesus was angry about with the Pharisees. A false distinction between law and gospel. A use of law as the cudgel to get people to behave. And Jesus says the law does not do that. The law is supposed to completely disarm us, drop us down to our knees so that we have nothing to hold up as merit before God so that God can say, I save you completely because of who I am, not because of who you are. 
In fact, the moment that you should not be afraid is the moment when you're actually afraid of God. If you're not actually afraid of God, then you should be. But if you are actually afraid of God, if you realize how powerful and in control he is of all things, then don't be afraid. Like I told the children, if that, that bear is in your house, you should be scared of him until the bear starts talking and says, don't be afraid. I'm here to protect you. I mean, C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia did this probably the best with the character of Aslan, right? Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Your God is not safe, but he is good. This is the fear of God. It really comes in two parts, two steps, maybe you would say. First, you need to actually be terrified of God. You need to recognize who he actually is. And then realize that he turns to you and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the biggest, baddest, scariest thing out there, and I am on your side. So Jesus continues. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. But then he continues, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Essentially, Jesus does the same thing again. After saying, you should fear God, but God says, don't be afraid. You see what he does here? He says, you must acknowledge who Jesus is. You must acknowledge me before all people. But the fact is, you and I are scared of that, aren't we? Whether it's with friends or family or coworkers, whether it's online or in public, we, we feel a little bit nervous about acknowledging that we're Christians, about living a distinctly Christian life. We fail to do this. In some sense, we disown Jesus, right? And yet, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the words to say. When you're in those situations where you have to make a confession for Christ, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He will give you the words to say. Again, law and gospel. The demand, you must acknowledge Christ. You absolutely must. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. If you think that you are going to be saved because you flipped the switch of making sure that I acknowledge Jesus enough before people, you will fail. You will fall short. You will never lift up. But if you realize that you receive the word of the Holy Spirit through his power, through scripture, read and studied and prayed and sung, it will come out of you and you will acknowledge Christ. This is not about your work. It's about Christ's work for you. And Jesus says this to expose this hypocritical attitude of the Pharisees. So what we try to do is we try to present ourselves by our works to be good. But Jesus says, actually, the person who knows me is the one who admits I'm not good. I don't do it. Please, Jesus, help me. All of this gets us to wrestle with this idea of the realness of God. The realness of God. For many people, God is an abstract idea. He's a philosophical system that I adhere to that helps me more or less organize my life or feel good about myself, give me a little bit of inspiration or a little bit of wisdom. But how many of us can truly say, I actually believe that there is a real being out there who I am actually accountable to every single day? I mean, if we conceptually believe that, how functionally do we live that way? I think for many of us, myself included, a lot of the time we don't. That's what Jesus is pressing on. Do you fear God? Probably not if you think he's sort of an abstract idea. Do you feel like you need to acknowledge Christ? Probably not if you sort of think he's a system that you follow. 
But if he's a real person, a real being who actually exists and actually holds a claim on your life, how could you do anything else? I mean, in some sense, Jesus is pressing us here and saying, look, do you, do you actually believe? Or do you have an idea that you, you believe in? The title of this sermon is, We Believe, Therefore We Speak. What comes out of our mouth shows what's in our hearts. And at this point, every one of us should say, what comes out of my mouth a lot of the time shows that there is not only good living in my heart. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of unwillingness to acknowledge Christ. There's sinfulness. There's corruption. There's, there's a twisted spirit. And to all of that, Jesus says, don't be afraid. But if you read this text and you think that you're going to be saved by your works, then you will be absolutely terrified. But if you read this in light of what Jesus has said through this entire gospel up to this point, you will say, thank God for Jesus, because I cannot and I will not do this by myself, but Jesus will do it for me. Now, one last thing that we have to tackle before we finish this text, wrap it up and and put a bow on it, and that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. One of the more challenging things in the scripture, it's one of the questions, like if I had a top 10 list of all the questions I've been asked repeatedly in my ministry, this would be on that top 10 list. But what about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I mean, you heard what Jesus said in the text, right? Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Sounds pretty cut and dry. Don't do that one thing, you'll be fine, right? Except that's not really what Jesus is saying here. Um, In fact, I think the reason that many people believe that this is what Jesus is saying here is because they have been taught by false teachers to believe exactly what Pharisees were teaching. That you're going to be saved as long as you don't do this one really super bad thing. But have you been reading the text? Jesus just three verses before this said, don't be afraid. And what do false preachers do with this verse? They three verses later say, you should be afraid. They miss Jesus. They miss the point. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that you, Christian, who love Jesus, who fear him and repent to him, should worry about at all. It's simply the statement of the fact that if you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject forgiveness. Right? If, if you reject Jesus, if you reject forgiveness, if you say, I don't want that anymore, I'm done with this thing where I get my sins forgiven because of the work of Christ, then, yeah, you don't have it anymore. Okay, that's what it is. But I don't think that's any of you. <laughs> In fact, the people who usually ask this question are the most terrified people. They're the ones who fear God the most because they don't want to lose God. And so they say, look, I saw this verse that says that I might lose God if I, if I do this. Don't be afraid. Lean into the fact that you will not do it well, but Jesus does it well for you. So t- to summarize this, make it very clear for you. If you fear rejecting the Holy Spirit, you definitely haven't. Okay, if you fear rejecting the Holy Spirit, you definitely haven't. The person who's rejecting the Holy Spirit does not care about the Holy Spirit. He does not care about what God thinks or what God might do. But if you fear it, if you read that and say, I don't want that, you're not even close to committing it. And second, even if you would, you could still be forgiven. Like if you rejected Jesus and said, I don't want to be forgiven, you could come back. I don't recommend it. I mean, to run away from God's house and to, to be like the lost younger son in the parable of the two sons is not a good idea. But if you feel like, man, I don't know, I, 
I don't know if I've rejected Jesus. I don't know if I believe this. Repent, and you'll be forgiven. What this text forces us to wrestle with is whether or not our faith is completely dependent on God and his work. There are verses in this text that could lead us to believe that we could be saved by our works. If only we would acknowledge Christ. If only we would be faithful in every situation. If only we would not be hypocritical. Then then God would love us. Then then God would acknowledge us. Then God would think more highly of us than others. But, But Jesus' message to us is this. You have no chance on your own. So don't be afraid. The thing that could actually destroy you will not destroy you. Trust in him. Repent to him. And he will give you everything that you need. And once that's the truth, speak about it. Right? Once you know that that is your status, that the scariest, biggest, baddest thing out there is on your side, how could you have fear of anything else? Just summarize. If you're the real God, then don't be afraid. And then speak honestly about him. Because frankly, what can they really do to you anyways, if all of that is true? Last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Those three things at the top, fear the real God, don't be afraid, and speak honestly, are the way the text is laid out. And for those of you who have been coming here for a while, you know that I like to notice a chiasm wherever I can. Hebrew thought thinks in kind of an X pattern, where Westerners, we kind of think in a line pattern, like things get more and more important or exciting in a story. Hebrews don't think that way. They think the most important thing is in the middle of a thing, and they mirror it on either side. And isn't this exactly what Jesus says? Speak not hypocritically. Speak not hypocritically. In the middle, and don't be afraid. So open your mouth. You believe, therefore speak. And don't be afraid when you fail. The one who could actually throw you into hell will not, because he loves you, and he's forgiven you, and he's chosen you, he's washed you, and he's promised you eternity. Let's thank God for that. Jesus, this is a challenging teaching. Uh, it's, it kind of pricks our conscience to make us think that we might be able to do the right thing in order to, for, the, for you to love us more. So remind us of the gospel, that we can't, but that it's okay because you have fully and freely loved and forgiven us. Forgiven us. We ask that you would challenge us to speak what we believe, to send the Holy Spirit to make us more bold, to face the persecutions that we might face, with a a trust in you and a, a boldness that goes beyond a human's understanding. We ask all this in your name. Amen.